young. You know this for my Pittsburgh Steelers, you know what I'm saying? Salutes. Uh. Black and gold, what we die for. Black and gold, what we Thank you for joining us on Longest War. This is going to be a special episode that comes from our recent live event uh, we recorded at Heinz Field. And for those of you who don't know, that is the home of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are playoff-bound at the moment. It's a great event. We're going to talk to some great veterans. First up, we've got Marine Corps veterans Leonard and LaShondra Hammonds. Uh, we also speak with Craig Williams about his 20-year career in the Navy. Uh, we speak with State Representative Jake Wheatley on how the Marine Corps prepared him for the hurry-up-and-wait culture of being an elected official. And finally, we'll talk with Paul Abernathy, who went from combat engineer during the invasion of Iraq to the priesthood. So uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. As always, if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and like us on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcasting app. Going hard because we still us, still us, still us, still us, still us, still us, All right, so we are the Veterans Breakfast Club, and Todd made me a promise or told me to promise that I would mention that because apparently I don't do that all the time, and I don't tell people who I am or what we do or why we're here. So I'm Nick Grimes. I am uh, the younger, better-looking version of Todd. Uh, I do the post-9/11 events. And if you don't know what VBC does, you're going to find out tonight. So here we go. First of all, I want to thank Jefferson Regional Foundation and the Heinz Endowments. Without their support, we would not be able to do what we do. Um, so thank you to them. I'd like to introduce the staff, Todd, the brains behind the organization. Todd, if you could give a wave. <laughs> Kevin Farkas, the muscle of the organization. Kevin. Yeah, look at those shorts. That's the definition of short, right there. Lauren Del Ritchie, where is she? Lauren, stand up, give a wave. Lauren is our newest staff member with BBC. And I, obviously, am the looks of the organization. We have a podcast called Longest War. You can find it on all of these cool platforms, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, it started out... Uh, specifically about post 9-11 veterans, but it's, it's, uh, it's evolved since then. We've had great older vets on there. Warren Goss, who is here, where's Warren at? That handsome 93-year-old War II vet we got back there. He's been on the podcast. Who else has been on that's in here? I don't know, we've had a lot of people on the podcast. Uh, it's great, you guys should check it out. If you don't know what a podcast is, ask Todd. He's very proficient in this kind of stuff and he can point you in the right direction. Uh, our newsletter, this is an old one. A new one is going to come out soon. But if you're not registered with us and you don't receive these in the mail, please stop by the front desk on your way out and fill out a registration slip. So that way we have your contact information and we can send you one of these cool newsletters so you will be kept abreast of all of the VBC's upcoming events. Uh, we have a special guest. We have Heinz Endowments. Grant Oliphant is here. Uh, they are a big supporter of what we do. And we'd like Grant to say a few words, please. Thanks, Nick. Evening, everyone. So, um, honest to God, the only reason I have a few things to say to you is because Nick said I have a slide with your name on it and you have to talk. So, um, I you know, I think what I want to say is, first of all, I want to thank the, the Steelers and the Roonies for the fact that we're meeting here. Uh, I think they deserve a round of applause for that. <clears throat> I, I was just um, privileged to sit in on a, on a discussion that Nick helped pull together 
of veterans and Steelers representatives to talk about some of what's going on in our country. And what I loved was the caliber of the dialogue. Uh, and I think I give a lot of credit to the Steelers that they were um, willing to host that conversation. It illustrates why the Heinz Endowments do what we do in the veteran space. We are privileged to fund a variety of programs uh, working with veterans in our area. And it's rooted in one single belief, which is that veterans represent an untapped resource for our community. Too often the conversation in our country is about the needs um, and not about the strengths and not about the tremendous asset that veterans represent. We think that our community actually is capable of being an example to the country of how veterans can play a positive and engaged and deeper role in every aspect of the community. So we're tremendously grateful for what you've done. But I, I love what uh, Matt Landis uh, has adopted as his motto, which I, I hope I'm not stealing his thunder and sharing this, but one of the things that Matt Landis, who's um, been a participant in a variety of our programs, has said is, don't thank me, I'm not done yet. And I believe that about everybody in this room. So thank you. Uh, by the way, great name, Veteran Breakfast Club. Come on, you're at dinner. <laughs> we call this VBC at night. Somebody had the suggestion we call it kegs and eggs, which I really like, but we'll see. We're going through a rebranding. We'll see how that goes. Now we actually are privileged enough to have Grant's better half here, Aradna Oliphant. Where is she? She's hiding in the back. Ah. Better three quarters. Uh, <laughs> All right, Aradna, uh, so I've known you for a long time. You're with Leadership Pittsburgh, a program I'm a graduate of, many people in here are graduates of, and we'd like you to say a few words about that program, please. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nick. A big round of applause for Nick Grimes first. And where is his wonderful wife with Mission Continues? Stephanie Grimes, right there. Uh, so, you know, I did not want Grant and I to be the only husband-wife show here, so I just wanted to make sure that you knew that there are other couples who are very invested in the community and in the veteran space, because we ought to be, we should be. I work at Leadership Pittsburgh, Inc. I'm privileged to serve as the president and CEO of Leadership Pittsburgh. We are a nonprofit leadership institute. And with the help of the Heinz Endowments, before Grant Oliphant was there, but where's Captain Megan Andros? So Megan is the reason why our program, Community Leadership Course for Veterans, or CLCV, was started. And uh, Megan and I have worked together now almost five years, developing the concept of which Nick was the, uh, is a graduate of our first course of CLCV. We have had four classes. We are recruiting for the fifth class, and yes, I said recruiting, people have to apply. It is a program meant for post 9-11 veterans, not to raise their skills, because the military gives, and your experiences, for those of you who have served our country, you have enough skills. What we are trying to do through CLCV is deploy those skills for the benefit of the community. We are being very selfish. We think it is stupid if the community doesn't access those skills. 
So we are just the intermediaries of that. By a show of hands, in addition to Nick, can I please request the CLCV graduates? Actually, why don't we stand up? We are proud. Why just a show of, of hands? Please stand up and let's please give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you for your service and thank you for making through the six months of a pretty rigorous program called Community Leadership Course for Veterans. There are, we are recruiting for the next class and our wonderful program director, Marie Hamlet, is sitting. Marie, may, would you please stand up? Round of applause, thank you. Uh, Marie and Zach have all the information. Applications are due first Friday in February. It's a six-month-long program, but I'll not bore you with the details. It's asset-based. But why the heck should a younger veteran apply? And instead of me telling you, Matt Landis, you have been evoked before. So I'm going to ask Matt. He's a graduate of our second cohort of CLCV. Why should anyone apply, Matt? So when you, the, the desire to serve is, is one piece of the big puzzle that we all are familiar with. Uh, but the thing that made you an asset to the military, the thing that made you effective as a warfighter and, and then to go on and uh, influence the, the history of our nation uh, was the basic training and then the training that you received, the training that you received afterwards. Uh, so if I were to equate CLCV to anything, if you're one of those veterans, it's the basic training that will be, make you the weapon to help in the nonprofit space here in Pittsburgh. Uh, the desire to serve alone isn't always enough. The, the training that they give you and the connections that it gives you makes you an asset. Uh, and then from there, it doesn't end when you graduate to, to continue that, that same analogy. Beyond that, there's opportunities to continue to grow and to continue to build your effectiveness as a, a weapon in the nonprofit space. And that, for me at least, has almost solely come through uh, programs and connections that I've made through CLCB. So I really, I believe in it the same way that I believe in, in the military structure, the thing that made me a great soldier, that made me an effective asset for, for the military. This is what makes me an effective asset for the nonprofit space in Pittsburgh. And I just, I can't tell you enough the importance of it as that. It's the, it's the solid ground that you're gonna jump off of to make a huge difference in the city. Uh, and I would love to, to see everybody in here that's interested in that as part of the alumni program in the future, kind of out there as another one fight beside us doing the things we're doing, so. Thank you, and of course, Matt is the director of No One Left Behind. Nick is just done wonderfully with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Thank you so much for your partnership with us. Thank you to the Steelers and to the Rooney family for enabling this. Thank you, Nick. Is State Rep Weekly here yet? Does anyone know? Has anyone seen him? He's in traffic. He's around. We'll come back to him. We got another devil dog then, Leonard Hammonds. Thank you. All right, Leonard, so this obviously is you. Uh, yeah, that's me. When you were just a very young man. Not that you're not a still a young man. Yes. But just a much, much younger man. 20-something uh, years ago. So let's start out. When and why did you decide to join the Marine Corps? I joined in 1997, and the reason why is because everyone said that I couldn't. 
They said, you're flat-footed, you're 111 pounds, you're a troublemaker, you couldn't do it. So I said, where do I sign? <laughs> what did you sign up to be besides a Marine? What was your job specifically? I had uh, various jobs. Uh, I did administration, then they attached me to an MP unit, and then I did recruiting. Of those three, what did you like the most? Recruiting. Recruiting? Why is that? Because I'm a people person and there's no place I'd rather be than in front of someone that I could let them know about the great things that the military has to offer and give them an opportunity to do some of the same things that I did. You like to get up in front of people and talk. I never would have guessed it. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> never Every now and then. What is this, what's this picture here from? This is Marine Combat Training. This is uh, 1998. It was extremely hot there in North Carolina at Camp Geiger. I think it's one of the hottest places on earth. What's up with the one guy smiling? Has he just not been broken yet? What's his problem? Uh, he was smiling to stop from crying. I think I had my <laughs> knee in the small of his back. I didn't like him too much. So where did you grow up? I grew up between uh, Swissville and Penn Hills, back and forth every day. So when you got to uh, Paris Island, Paris Island, correct? Paris Island, went, correct. When you got to Paris Island, what was the biggest culture shock change? What, what, was, what was the one thing that threw you off the most that you weren't expecting? It was the unknown. Any, any Marines in here? Yeah. Uh, here we go. When you go to the Marine Corps boot camp, the first thing you see is yellow footprints. You get on those yellow footprints and everything else is just a, a mysterious ride. So it was just the unknown. When you got to Paris Island, it was just a whole new world. What did you like most about basic? Discipline. It, it was something that uh, I could honestly say, you do not know what discipline is until you go into the military, specifically the Marine Corps. Discipline has a whole nother definition. What'd you like least about it? Those yellow footprints. Those yellow footprints, <laughs> huh? Uh, same question for your, your general military service. What'd you, what'd you like most and what'd you like least about it? I like the opportunity that, that was provided with diversity. Uh, when I went into the military, there was no more black, there was no more white, there wasn't any, we were all green. And our drill instructors used to tell us, you know, you're either light green or you're dark green. <laughs> so I, I like the diversity, I like the fact that I could stand right across from you and say, you're my brother. And it doesn't matter what color you are, don't matter what religion, it doesn't matter your background, we're brothers. And that's one thing that you get in the military that you might not um, have that opportunity without, you know, within the community. And what least favorite? Least favorite, drill instructors. Drill instructors. Drill instructors. Did you ever want to be one? About 10 to 15 minutes, then I changed my mind because you had to go to boot camp once again. Oh, no, no, no. How do I put this? Like, whenever I'm around you, you just motivate me. There's something. How many young men did you trick into joining the Marine Corps? <laughs> well, I, I didn't have to trick anybody to join the Marine Corps. Who doesn't want to be a Marine? Me, I did not want to be a Marine. I want to be in the Army. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I feel like you could have... It's not too late for you. I feel you. like you could have talked it, me it, into it, It's not it, too man. late. But one of, the, one of the greatest things was for me to come back to my community and show individuals that this is something that you can do. A lot of people, they didn't see a lot of African Americans in, in the military, especially when I, when I was in. And one of the things that fascinated me is I had an African American recruiter come in at that time, I was surprised and I was talking to him and I was asking him, what, what were some of your experiences? And he started shedding light on me. He told me he was from McKeesport and he told me he had a similar background that I did. And he told me, he says, listen, if you want to get out of these streets, this is the best opportunity for you. So when I sat down with these different uh, students and I told him, I says, you know, what are some of the ideas you have for your future? 
And the worst thing is to talk with somebody that says, I don't know. Because we know in our community right now, if you don't know, idle time on your hands, there's a lot of negative things that are out there. So it was a great opportunity to be able to sit down with somebody and give them a great trajectory for their lives. So it was an opportunity for people to uh, rather further their uh, education or, or just get out of a dangerous community, some of the uh, job security that comes along with the military. It was just pretty much just introducing opportunities. And what year did you get out? I got out in 2005. 2005. And since then, you have founded the Hammonds Initiative. Yes. So I want to ask you if you can tell us about the Hammonds Initiative, what you do, and then also how your military experience prepared you to start that organization. Well, Hammonds Initiative is a nonprofit organization that my wife and I started. And we, we looked at all the different things that were going on in the community, whether it was gun violence, whether it was poverty, issues with social justice. The biggest thing is we've seen there, there was a lot of kids. And right now, I don't know if you're watching the news, but there are young men that are being killed every week. I just preached a young man's funeral uh, last week. Yesterday, I belonged to the American Legion in Rankin, Pennsylvania. We had a man that was shot in our parking lot. Day before that, we had a young man. He was, uh, I believe he was under the age of 18. He was shot and burned in a car a block away from the American Legion. And we looked at all these different things that were going on in our community. And I said, what are we going to do about this? And my wife and I said, listen, we got to get out here and we got to lead the way. And then we got out there and we start recruiting other veterans, uh, such as Craig Williams here. He's a, he's a Navy veteran. He came to the table and then it became contagious. And more individuals came to the table and says, how can we help? How can we get out in the community and do violence prevention intervention? How can we mentor our youth? How can we be more engaging? And that's the thing. Just because we all had our EAS date, it doesn't mean that our service has to stop. Hammond's initiative is a transition from country to community. And the thing that everyone here today has an opportunity is to get involved. Everyone has heard about something with gun violence, have experienced violence at some level. There is more combat going on in our community than there is in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's more gore on the streets of Pittsburgh today than what the news will report. So Hammond's initiative is that missing link. And Hammond's initiative is something that it started with my initiative and my wife's initiative to get out there, but it won't end. Because as long as someone else in this room takes the initiative to go out there and, and lend their voice and lend their time, talent, and resources, we could change our communities. And I'm not sure if you answer this exactly, but how did your military service prepare you to launch Hammond's initiative? What's the, how's it benefited you? It was definitely the leadership and servant leadership at that. And it was also a lot of the administrative things and getting people together, rank and file, and, and just learning how to be calm under pressure. Because one of the things that I tell people right now, we go into a lot of these different communities and we're dealing with uh, group violence intervention. And for a person who ha doesn't have any military experience, when you hear about someone got shot and then they call you and say, Leonard, we need you to come down here. And you're thinking like, okay, the police hasn't shown up yet. You got a fresh body on the ground. You got different groups that are feuding. Uh, there's a great chance that I could have some kind of bodily harm done to me. And as my wife can contest, uh, we have a bullet hole through one of our vehicles now because we're first on the scene. And that's one of the things that I've learned in the military is you have to be prepared for anything. And that's something that transitioned over to a Hammonds initiative. So kind of like the idea in the military, we don't run away from gunshots, we run towards it, right? We, we run straight to the problem. We run to the problem with solutions. 
Excellent. Well, Leonard, thank you so much for sharing tonight. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you. I appreciate you. And for our third couple of the evening, we have Leonard's beautiful wife, LaShondra, who is also a veteran, Hello, uh, Marine veteran. Yes. So same question to ask for Leonard. When and why did you decide to join the Marine Corps? Okay, I joined the Marine Corps straight out of high school in 2001. I joined because I always looked at the bigger picture, even as a youth. I've always wanted to be a better person and make myself a better person. And the only way I saw that was into joining the Marine Corps because I wanted that challenge. I wanted to prove to myself and to others who didn't believe that I could do it that there was much more within me. What did you do in the Marines? I was an aviation electrician for the Hughes and Cobras, did maintenance on the communication weapons and electrical systems. As Matt Landis pointed out earlier, he was a pilot. Basically, he broke it and you fixed it, right? Absolutely. I made sure he lived. <laughs> <laughs> What's this picture here from? Is this from training? No, this is actually from my school. This is, no, I take that back. This is actually from the ship. I was on uh, the USS Harry S. Truman back in 2002. That's when I was on the Mediterranean Sea tour. This is on the flight deck on top of that ship. It was an uh, aircraft carrier. What do Marines do on a, on a ship? Uh, we definitely do support. Uh, we work right alongside with the Navy. We help them do maintenance on the aircraft. We also uh, do anything that's just anywhere they need us, basically. We protect them, we work with the MP mostly, because uh, just in case pirates or someone come, you want to have great shooters, snipers, marksmen on that ship. You hear that, Navy? You hear what she's saying? She's saying you want to have <laughs> people that really know how to shoot weapons on that ship. That's what she's, that's underlying Thank you, she said. Oh, Craig, you're up next. You can defend that if you want. Uh, how long were you at sea when you were on the, the Truman? It was for a year on and off. You do training for about five months, and then you go on to deployment for about six, seven months. You do your port stops in your different countries, as well as navigate around the particular seas. And you're, you're not from Pittsburgh originally, from Texas. Yes, born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas. That's where I come from. How much time did you spend on the water before you joined the Marines? Absolutely zero. Zero. I was not prepared for that. <sighs> did you get uh, seasick? Uh, not really, surprisingly. Not no, really. Not at no, all. No, I think I was more sick from the, all the vaccinations that they given me more than seasick. Oh, yeah, those shots. <laughs> yes, they a lot of small ruin pox. you. Oh, absolutely, yes. I got another. This is you in Iraq, correct? Oh, yes. I was always happy-go-lucky, no matter what situation I may have been in. It's 2004? Yes, 2004. That's when I went Camp Alicide. Um, that was definitely, believe it or not, I had that smile on my face, but I was not feeling that happy most of the time. Uh, <laughs> you have to, what's the term? Uh, you have to smile to keep from crying sometimes. So that's one of those moments. <laughs> and what is your, did your job change any downrange or was it basically the same working on helicopters? Did you have any additional duties that you didn't normally have stateside or while you're out on ship? Well, right there, uh, during that time, I was a utility engineer because I also did that as well. Uh, you can do MOS changes with your enlistment. So at that time, I was working with the generators, which you can see in the background, and we did maintenance on that. I've always loved working with uh, electrical systems. And I was one of the few people with the Humvee license, and I you know, would just escort everyone around, ducking and dodging missiles, and just trying to make sure that we had electricity 
to continue the function like we needed to be functioning. How long were you in Iraq? Uh, eight months. Eight months. Longer than most Marine tours. You guys hear that? I'll talk shit. I'll do it. <laughs> uh, a lot of you guys only do six months. It's true. How did you like your time in Iraq? Uh, it was definitely, definitely, um, it was definitely a scary time in my life, actually. How old were you at the time? I was actually 20, and I actually spent my 21st birthday in Iraq. So Me I too. Would never I spent mine in that. Afghanistan. Yes, I turned 21 while I was there. So that was, I didn't get to do all the drinking that us Marines do. You made up there, for it when so. you got home, though, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, same thing I asked her. What was your favorite part about the Marine Corps, and then what was your least favorite part about the Marine Corps? Okay, my favorite was the camaraderie, the family feel, and the unknown. I love the excitement of never knowing what's going to happen. One day they could just be like, you know what, you're going to go to... Florida, one day you're going to go to Paris or Greece one day. You never knew. That's what I really loved about it. And what I liked least was, uh, like I said, the unknown is a double-edged sword because you really grew close to a lot of people and you grew a lot of love for them and then you would end up having to say goodbye just that quick, you know, whether it be due to a discharge, change of duty, deployment, or whatnot. And final question, how did your military experience help prepare you for your life as a civilian, as a mother, as a wife, all that stuff? I would say uh, it definitely instilled a lot of discipline within me. Um, it definitely uh, changed my perspective on how to look at everything. Uh, leadership qualities, I will say that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cassandra. Really thank appreciate you, you sharing thank tonight. You. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I got two mics and a clicker, and it gets stuck in my pocket. So, Craig Williams, look at this young fella. <laughs> haven't aged a day what uh alright so when and why did you join the Navy obviously well I went into the Navy February 4th 1991 the military was not something that I planned to do I played football at Woodland Hills I was a I was a pretty good player had plans to go I had an NFL I mean not an NFL I had a college scholarship to go play and growing up in the projects, it's easy to get sidetracked. I was, you know, I grew up in the, in the 80s, so I was around that epidemic when things started to change, when the, I'll say the, the crack cocaine epidemic came through in the 80s, and I, um, I started to get into a little trouble, so had a cousin that was going into the Navy, or he was getting signed up in the Navy, and to get away and get myself away from that, I uh, said, I need you to hook me up with your recruiter. Two weeks later, I was signed up and ready to go. And then at that time, I was 18, young, and you know, I had met my wife. We had just had our, our youngest son, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to have my son see me grow up the way I saw my father behind bars, so I'm going to try this military thing. I didn't, I didn't have a branch of choice. I knew some family member going into the Navy. So I signed up and off I went. What, what was your, Emma, what's your job? What'd you do? Well, when you go into the Navy, you don't have a plan. You end up being a bosun mate. <laughs> if there's any Navy 
I heard some Vince. weird reactions. It sounds like that's not a good thing. <laughs> it, it's, it is. It is. No, being a bolster mate is a great thing because you are actually the jack of all trades. I would. I'm going to go on record to say if you're on a ship without a bolster mate, that ship doesn't. That ship doesn't function. We are the jack of all trades. We do. A, we got our hands in a little bit of every everything. So this was basic training. This photo here. Yes. That's a pretty big smile. This next picture I'm going to show, I don't think I've ever seen someone so happy to be in the Navy before in my life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why are you so thrilled right here? Is it just the fact that you're just in the Navy? You got some, you got some rank on your shoulder so, now? You know, the rank has some, something to do with it, but at that time in my career, you know, as I told you, I had no plans of going to the military, but at that time in, the, in my career, I knew I had made the right choice. So what rank is that? What is that? That is a E4. There's one Chevron there. So it's yeah, E4, that's so that's E4. an NCO. Man, I have to tell you, when I was a private in the Army, I would have loved to have had NCOs to just look that nice and happy. <laughs> that's not how they look in the Army, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't uh, think that's how they look at the Marines either. We, we may have been just coming off of a deployment there, too, you know, so just coming back from seeing, you know, the Philippines, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, you'd be smiling oh, too. You got a lot, lot to smile about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, how many tours did you do? Two, I did two Westpacs. So, a Westpac is two six month cruises. My first one was in 92, then I did another cruise in 94. The cruise in 92, usually when you do a a tour, you do it with a battle group. But the one we did in 92, I was on the AE, the USS Flint, uh, since it's, it's decomped, I decomped that ship. We went alone because that's when they had the volcano in the Philippines, so we had to go there and close out the base in the Philippines and move all the ammo from the Philippines to Japan. If anyone's ever been to the Philippines, it, no, it's not well, the Philippines. I had a tear in my eye when we finally left the Philippines because I knew we'd never be going back. <laughs> you would have stayed behind if you could have, huh? I don't know if I'd have stayed behind. I had a wife and kids at home. I'm not going to say <laughs> it wasn't that fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So uh, what did you like most about your, your time in the service? And what did you like least about your time in the service? What I like most about my time in service is the the lifetime friends that I've made since being in the military. And when I say that, I just, we still keep in touch today. That's, you know, and Leonard spoke on it earlier, the diversity of friends I have from Filipino, white, Hispanic, African. I mean, different cultures that I was able to build bonds with and still have those bonds to this day. Well, and, least favorite. Least favorite was boot camp, Great Lakes in February. I never knew cold could be so cold until I was in Great Lakes in February. <laughs> and I forgot to ask this question to Leonard the Founder, but I'll ask you, uh, did you ever, on either of your tours, were you gone for Christmas? No, I was not gone for Christmas, but you know, far worse experience of being gone was um, my first my first tour, I, my wife was six months pregnant, so I was in the middle of the ocean when my daughter was born. Came home three months, three months when she was three months old, and then I had a son born in '94. And a week later, I I left 
for deployment and you know to come back and your children don't know you because you know he was a day old right when, when i had to pull when i had to pull out so so you did uh, was it nine years active duty i did nine years active duty my first five and a half years i spent uh, on two ships the uss flint and uss kiska both both aes and id comp both both ships and for three years i was a mp uh military police so there's two different types of mps right like there's the cool mps that uh they catch you drinking underage and they just kind of like get you back to your rooms that's sure patrol so you were, what kind of mp were you i was a military police officer like gun on hand drove in a military police car and like harassing all of us to just trying to have a good time you're trying to ruin our good time for us that kind of MP, the typical MP. Pretty much. Oh, man. <laughs> it, but you look so nice. Like, how could you be like that? <laughs> uh, so you reserves for 11 years. Also, you are the president of the Penn Hills Youth Football Association. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you guys do? And how did your military experience pre prep you to, to take on that role? So with our youth, uh, youth football program, uh, it's Penn Hills, we're... Uh, we have ages from five until 13, and that's football players and cheerleaders. Um, the pictures that you see here, these are a lot of the guys that, that graduated from the, from the program, but we still continue to mentor them and, and take them places. So you'll see the one at the top left-hand corner. I want to say this was a mentorship program we had called uh, Voices. I want to say Heinz Endowment help sponsor that but I may be wrong but the the, um, the young ladies from the Carnegie Museum from the uh, museum on the north side the children's museum on the north side they reached out to me and so we put this um, mentorship together where uh, at the end they were able to receive free HP laptops where if it wasn't for that they most of them didn't have a laptop this here in the left and these other pictures are, I had a traveling uh, 707 team sponsored by um, the Hayward House, Cam Hayward, where he helped sponsor, where the kids, where you'll see these pictures uh, at the bottom right-hand corner, we were at Penn State, so we also took them on college tours. Um, and most of the kids in that picture are already in college now, not at Penn, at Penn State, already in college, or they're on their way to college. Every kid in that picture. How did your time in Nagley help prepare you to, to lead these young men? Through what you've heard most of the mili military vets before me say it, discipline. I was able to instill discipline in, in these guys. And I, uh, you know, I harp on the discipline because without the discipline, you, you can't win. You can't win on the football field and you can't win in life because lack of discipline will can cause you to take a – a road less traveled. Well, awesome. Craig, thanks so much for sharing. Also, you have uh, your own business now, uh, yes. right? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So you I plug that real quick? Absolutely. Absolutely. So after retiring from the Navy in 2011 and I retired from the state last year, I was able to partner with a, um, a uh, wonderful life insurance company, uh, Lincoln Heritage. It gave me the opportunity to be my own to be my own boss, but what I love most about it, it was a, it's a company where I'm able to help 99% of my clients because there's only two things that we will not cover. That's if a person is HIV or terminally ill, but I was able more so to help a lot of veterans 
with um, getting coverage that they didn't have because we offer premiums as low as $15, $15 a month, no physical required. I'm able to take care of my clients the same day in the home. And as long as they're not HIV positive or terminally ill, we can cover them. And we have a 97% payout and we are the number one company in final, spent, final expense. So. Do you well, have business cards with you? I do have business cards with me, absolutely. <laughs> so right. if anyone's interested, we, you can get coverage on your parents, you, your, your children, yourself. Take my business card, it takes 10 minutes for, for me to sit with you and go over the information. Craig, thanks so much for sharing, brother. I appreciate Thank you. it, man. All right, we got special guests here. We got Representative Jake Wheatley. Hello. Okay. What year was this? This was uh, 19... I'm sorry, 1989. 1989. So I was four years old at the time. Oh, the <laughs> I can't even remember. That doesn't even look like me. What made you decide to join the Marines? How, and how old were you at the time? I was 17 when I joined the Marines. And... Some of you may remember this movie called um, Boys in the Hood. I lived the true life story of Boys in the Hood because I was on scholarship at, uh, I, have, I was part of a program called En-ROADS. Um, and I was in high school in Minnesota. En-ROADS takes talented uh, minority students and during the summer, they exposed them to life on college campuses. So my senior year, I had chosen to enroll because I got a partial scholarship to St. Cloud State in Minnesota. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Minnesota, but St. Cloud State is like northern part of Minnesota. And so it's where es Eskimos don't even want to be. But I don't know, I, I chose to be there. And when I went there this summer, I didn't have a real high school, I didn't have a real senior year summer off. I went right into school because they try to get you to do all your first semester courses and everything before other kids come on. Well, I realized I wasn't prepared for school or for playing college level sports. And so I came home and I told my mom I had finished the program, but I hadn't finished the program. And the coach called my mom. Oh she no. Was, right, so I'm at home chilling, everything's good. My mom answers the phone and, he, and the coach is like, what, is everything all right with Jake? Um, she was like, what do you mean? She, he was, she was like, he's um, missed two weeks of school and two weeks of practice. And she was like, well, he said it was all over. He said it was done. And they, the coach told her that everything was wrong. So she's yelling at me on the phone while she's talking to the coach. At the time she's yelling, the commercial comes on. It's the Marine, it's the Marine commercial and they're moving the chess pieces across the board. And you can be all you're gonna be and they give you the 1-800 number. So she's like, look, you either gotta go back to school or get a job, you can't just sit around here. So I told her, I said, I know what I'm gonna do. She said, what you gonna do? I said, I'm gonna be a Marine. She said, you don't, you're not disciplined. You can't listen to me. You so I'm 17 now. She tells me no. So I finish having the discussion with her. I go right to the Marine recruitment um, base, I mean um, office. And of course, as a Marine recruiter, the first thing he wants me to do is take an ASVAB test. So I do the test. I score pretty good on the test. And he says, well, what do you want to do when you're in the Marines? I said, I want to be uh, communication, thinking I was going to be, now this is before computers but I was thinking I was gonna be in somebody's office. I wanna be in communication. He said, oh, perfect, we got you. So when he finds out I'm 17 though, he needs my mom's signature. So he takes me back home, 
He convinces my mom to sign the papers. She wasn't going to sign it, but the recruiter convinces her to sign the papers. I go to boot camp, finish boot camp, and the man tells me, you are 2531. Any Marines in here? 2531? You know what that is? Field radio operator. He, I said, what's that? He said, you are infantry with a, another 25, 45 pounds on your back, right? Because you got to carry the radio. And a big antenna target. And a big antenna. I said, hold up. I said, they got that wrong. I signed up for communications. He said, what do you think this is? <laughs> so that's my experience. That's how I ended up here. So, uh, how long did you do in the Marines? I did three, a little over three years because my second tour, my first tour, no, second tour in the Persian Gulf, I inhaled too much of the burning. You, you all know about the three-day war, right? Well, it was three months of bombing and then actually a day of actual invasion or whatever, but they were burning oil fields all the while. And because of my job, I was a FO, which um, if you Ford Reserver, so I would go ahead of everyone else, but I inhaled too much. So anyway, uh, it impacted one of my lungs. And so when I got back, uh, I was discharged. So uh, this is a dumb question, but some people here may not know you. What do you do now? I'm a state rep. And as a state rep, how did your experience as a young Marine prepare you for life in government? It definitely made me um, more, uh, I guess, um, flexible with um, the whole term of hurry up and waiting. So, you know, <laughs> in Harrisburg, we do a lot of gearing up. Hey, everybody be here. We're going, we've got some important business to happen and, and end up waiting the whole night and nothing takes place. But no, it, gave me, it, it helped me with patience. I think it helped me develop a sense of um, you know, not getting frustrated with the unknown, being comfortable with the unknown, and uh, being willing to face whatever fears I might have and uh, deal with whatever comes, whatever comes down the pipe. And final two questions. What was your favorite part of being a Marine, and what was your least favorite part of being a Marine? My favorite part of being a Marine was the fact that, uh, first of all, I love being a Marine because the whole symbolism of Marines. You know, when I used to put on my uniform and we, were, we would go into towns or any place, or if I tell people now that I'm a Marine, there's a different type of receptivity that they give you. You know, I love that. You know, that was, that's something that I didn't realize when I went into it, but it's something that over time, it really became something that I appreciated, I guess. And as a Marine, there is this special brotherhood and sisterhood that I think no matter where I meet uh, a Marine somewhere out, uh, once they find out that I am a Marine, they, um, they definitely embrace me. So I, I, I think that was something I really appreciated or still do appreciate. And the thing that I didn't enjoy the most, uh, like I said, I was undisciplined. Did I say that? Oh, yeah, you mentioned it. So you can't be undisciplined and go to the Marine Corps. It's like a not, I learned very often and many times over and over that um, that order and that Structure was important, but it's something that I still, to this very day, never really appreciated the real impact of what that meant. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing with no us. Doubt. We really appreciate you. you being here with us. Thank you. Father, man, you guys made it easy for me. You sat together. I appreciate this. I thought I was going to be all over the room tonight. Yeah, I thought that was on purpose. So this is Father Paul Abernathy. Uh, Man, how, what are you, like uh, 11 years old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 11 going on 23 in that picture. 
So where was this? Uh, oh, oh, well, let's start from the beginning. So you joined the Army. When and why did you join the Army? Well, I grew up, with, uh, uh, I grew up with, uh, in the same household as my grandfather. And I remember going to uh, the house, that, the boyhood home that he grew up, and I would, watch my, I would look at my great-grandfather's World War I photograph they had proudly displayed on the wall. And of course, my grandfather was in World War II Army Combat Infantry uh, Purple Heart Bronze Star. I was born at Fort Carson, Colorado, because my mother and father were also both in the Army. And we grew up most uh, summers uh, that we went to Gettysburg. And my family really taught me about what, what, what it meant to, uh, to sacrifice and serve this country. So when I was old enough, I couldn't wait. I could not wait to sign the papers. So when Abernathy has served this country from World War I until today in every conflict we've had, huh? That's correct. That's impressive feat, man. And your, your mom and grandfather both still around, still live in Pittsburgh, That's right? right? Mm. So we gotta get them, we gotta get you guys all three to an event one of these days, man. I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Uh, so how old were you? When I enlisted? When you enlisted, yeah. 17. 17. And what MOS, you, you picked engineer, yeah, correct? Yeah, combat engineer. Right. Why, why engineers? Well, it seemed to like a lot of fun in the pictures. <laughs> and what I really remember was I was so excited because they, uh, I had an aunt that lived in, in Missouri because her husband was teaching at Mizzou, University of Missouri. We'd go to Missouri in the summers. When I, when I picked, you know, of course your family's not there when you choose. And I, I choose the engineers and, uh, and we were, they were sending me to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And I was so proud, and I thought, you know, my folks are going to be real happy because they're, you know, Army. And I, and I came back into the house, and they were on pins and needles. What'd you pick? I says, I'm going to the engineers. And my mother and my grandfather, at the same time, in the same like manner, said, I can't believe you picked that. <laughs> going to Fort Lost in the Woods, misery. And, that's, and that uh, place is truly miserable. <laughs> that's truly miserable. Hail indeed. the size of baseballs in <laughs> yeah. June coming down on you. There's right. no worse place to be. Right. <laughs> Where's this at? This is in Baghdad in April of 2003. So you were in the initial wave. Third ID, correct? Right. Third ID. You guys, so it's a story I want you to tell. You were well, on the podcast so, a while back, <laughs> and division commander got up and gave you a little pep talk before you, you invaded in. All right. Can you okay. tell that story, I, I please? I can tell that story. So this was, um, this was at the assembly area Hamburg. We'd end up, we would end up crossing into Iraq on the very first day of the ground war in March of 2003. Of course, we're getting really geared up to go. Uh, didn't know exactly when that call would be, but there was a place called Assembly Area Hammer that we were in in Kuwait on the border of Iraq waiting to go. At that time, <clears throat> there was a, uh, a uh, command sergeant major who was uh, clearly created for that role, as we all know. And, uh, and, he, and he stood, and, and actually his last name was Slaughter, which I couldn't believe. I said, Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, he had no other choice. This was his path. You know, his ordained path. <laughs> Command Sergeant Major Slaughter, and they pulled the battalion together, and he stood up there, right? Because we're all thinking, what, what, what is this conflict going to be like? And this is what he says to us. He says, this is not World War II. This is not Vietnam. This is Iraq. And the only thing I need from you is five good days. <laughs> five days, and it'll all be over. Of course, very hopeful words. And when the war began, that's, uh, that's certainly, we, we had that hope in our hearts, but, uh, but by day five, I mean, we realized <laughs> Command Sergeant Major Slaughter was wrong. <laughs> so, five days plus 360 additional days. <laughs> yeah, he left that out. He conveniently left that out. Yes, he left and, that out. Um, <laughs> 
Well, he, yeah, he did say five good days, which oh, I don't so, even know if we got that, but right. it was close, maybe. And so, you know, we talked about this before, but when you were leaving, when you were heading back to Kuwait, getting ready to come home, you were, you were happy, but at the same time, there was this sense of, I don't know, you better explain it, was a sense of, like, dread for the other guys. Yeah, well, you know, for me, coming home was very bittersweet because um, being there the very first year of the conflict, we didn't know exactly what would happen. And I remember as that, as that uh, conventional military operation turned very quickly into a, into a very brutal insurgency with no clear end in sight where people had difficult, uh, difficulty uh, explaining what the objectives were. And even I remember the day that I was in Iraq when Saddam was captured. Of course, Uday in, uh, and Kusay, they were killed. I was there in Iraq when all that happened. But, but this, even when Saddam was captured, there was like a like a short moment of, of jubilation only to, be, uh, only to be overshadowed by the next detail that was going out on patrol and going out on the line to, uh, for, to guard the perimeter. The very sobering for me was I remember when we were leaving, uh, my last place I was in Iraq was um, in, uh, in Balad at a, at a place called Anaconda. And uh, at this particular base camp, we were leaving to go out. There was a whole group of, of soldiers. There was a whole company that was just coming on to the base camp. And this was, they were just coming into Iraq. And I could never forget them because I knew at that moment that I was only able to come home because someone was taking my place. And that was an incredibly difficult burden to bear. It's you again, man. I don't know where you got all these pictures. I went on your Facebook, <laughs> man. I went on your Facebook and stalked you and found them. Uh, so be that a warning to anyone in the room. You're friends with me on Facebook. I will dig up your pictures and I'll get you to speak. Uh, so obviously you are now a, oh, so let's talk about this real quick. Uh, so when you got back, you joined Iraq Veterans Against the War. I did. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I had a lot of bad experiences across the pond over there. I realized that there was really no political objective and I had had been blessed with the opportunity to study before the war, incidentally, at the University of Aleppo in Aleppo, Syria, as part of an exchange student program. I was, uh, I was uh, studying international studies at Wheeling Jesuit. And so I, I was taking all of this and looking at what really were the results of our occupation and the decisions that we were making and the policies that we were making. And, and, and I was thinking about the, the generation of, of Iraqis that were growing up with, uh, they were starting to hate us. I remember that. I remember the point where they were starting to hate us. You could drive down the, stri the street, you could see the hatred in their eye. And, and the hatred, I remember, you know, it came from the death that they had seen on their streets. Because even maybe to us, maybe they were, maybe they were insurgents, maybe they were Iraqi army, maybe they were whatever, but this was their, their, their fathers and their brothers. And of course, in every military campaign, there's absolutely collateral damage. And I kept thinking about that next generation and what it meant for us, the soul of America. You know, in the Civil Rights Movement, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Martin Luther King's organization, you know, their mission was to redeem the soul of America. And I grew up, and I believe my family taught us who we were in this country. They taught us the values of this nation. They taught us to be American with a sense of compassion and a sense of what is right, a sense of justice. And for me, I could not reconcile what I saw across the seas with who this country, who we, at the depth of our heart and soul, truly are.
and in the best spirit, the best tradition of American citizenship, we gave voice. We gave voice as an obligation about what we truly believed was best for our nation. What did your mom and grandfather think about you deciding to join the anti-war movement? They were very, very excited. They were very, very supportive. They had the same concerns, and my grandfather still has the same concerns. For him, he grew up in an era where, where truly, truly, this nation was, although imperfectly, from what he would always describe, strive for. Strive for justice, strive for uh, equality, strive for freedom, strive to share these values with the people of the world and what they saw, they saw this conflict violating all of that. They were very supportive in this and they, they continue to be very supportive. So you got out, what, uh, you got out in 2004. 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, you are now a priest, in case anyone can't tell from the get up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so. Very quickly, I want to mention the last time I saw you was on Halloween. And I said, hey, man, yeah. what are you doing tonight? You were like, nothing. You know how hard it is for a priest to go outside on Halloween? Like, no one this believes I'm true. Nobody priest. takes you seriously. <laughs> Everyone's like, that is such a great costume. <laughs> so now you're a priest, and you are uh, executive director of Focus Pittsburgh? Mm -hmm. I am, yes. So tell me a little bit about the work you do there and uh, how your military experience prepared you for that work. So Focus Pittsburgh, we're a faith-based nonprofit founded by the Orthodox Church. We're located in the Hill District. Now our work is, is really countywide. But, um, you know, we started out doing a lot of basic needs, but our mission really changed, and it had a lot to do with my military service. It always goes back to the day when we were overseas, about eight months into my tour, one of the men in my company, he had this nervous breakdown. Remember, they took his weapon off him, and he was... Uh, he was not in a good place. He was not emotionally, uh, behaviorally in a good place. You know, he had, was on suicide watch and all that. And the Army brought in this Army uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, I think, actually, to talk to us about something I, as a young man, had never heard of before, and it was post-traumatic stress disorder. I'd never heard of it before. Now, when I would come home and uh, go into the priesthood and, and, and with focus and years later, you know, we started out with a lot of basic needs. People, uh, we had like food and clothing and IDs and birth certificates. We were doing things. But what amazed me was people would start talking. They'd start asking for a can of food, and they'd end up talking about a time when they were raped. They'd, they'd, they'd ask for an ID, and they'd end up talking about a time where they saw their cousin gunned down in the streets. They'd ask for, they'd ask for uh, some money for their lights, and they'd start talking about a time when they, when they had no, ho that, no place to lay their head. And it became apparent that I was seeing a thousand times the post-traumatic stress disorder in my own community that I ever saw when I was in the army and I began to think well you know we are so committed to helping veterans coming home from war who have been who have been so deeply affected and wounded by this war we're not caring about our own children who are being wounded right here in our own streets uh, and I couldn't accept that and because of that experience in the army we have really realigned the mission of our organization to address community trauma and we do it by a process we now call trauma-informed community development. And this is where we have three program areas, community support, that's for like everything from, from food and clothes, backpack feeding program to 
Then we have health and well-being initiatives with a free health center, uh, some community-based trauma-informed community development interventions we're doing in the community, and now a trauma response team that we're doing a partnership with the Allegheny County where we are responding to homicides in Allegheny County to be a, that presence of psychological first aid under health and well-being. And the third is leadership development which of course we also learned in the Army, because we have to take people in our community who are filled with frustration, and, we, and we've got to organize, we've got to educate, we've got to train, and we've got to equip. This we learned how to do in the Army, and we are taking this skill set to develop leaders in our own community to be, to be agents of positive change in our community. Father Paul, thank you so much for sharing. We really appreciate you. All right, unfortunately, we are out of time for tonight. Before we end, I'd like to say just a quick word. Uh, if you've got any interest in volunteering, doing any kind of community work, two of the men we've had speak tonight, Leonard Hammonds and Father Paul Abernathy, uh, run two of the best organizations in town, Focus Pittsburgh and the Hammonds Initiative. So I would encourage you to speak with them and see what, uh, how you can do your part to help them out. All right, let's end on that positive note. Thanks so much for coming out.